you know, my body was addicted to the trauma bond of being in a toxic relationship, of not feeling good enough in a relationship. So because that was how I felt with my father, that trauma bond as such, that's what I was replicating in my other relationships because it became my version of normal. We stayed married. My children were not going to have a single mother. They weren't going to have a broken home. I stay together because that's the right thing to do. Have you ever wondered how successful businesses and thought leaders keep landing those big media opportunities and keep the buzz going around what they're up to? It's not just by chance. They're all using the power of storytelling. I'm Nicola J. Rowley, and with over 25 years in the media as both a journalist and PR expert, I'm here to help you unlock the story potential for both you and your brand. Everything starts with a story. This is the power of storytelling podcast. Well, hello there. It's great to have you with us for this episode. I'm really excited about today's episode because I've been trying to get this guest on for well, pretty much since the beginning of the, the launch of the podcast. She is trauma-informed therapist, coach, and educator. And I'm willing to bet, now that I've said that, a lot of you will know who this is going to be. She also has a special place in her heart for narcissism and domestic abuse. She's also a podcaster, best-selling author, and she's got a myriad of other talents to her name the one and only Caroline Strawson. It's brilliant to have you with us today, Caroline. Oh, thanks so much uh, for inviting me on here. I know it's been kind of getting our times aligned, hasn't it? But we're here and I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you. And when we look at your journey, because it has been an incredible journey over the last few years. How long have you been doing this now for? Five years. So not actually a a long time as such, but it feels like this is what I was meant to do. And what I've experienced in, in my past has led me obviously to do this. So it's not what I set out to do as a little girl, certainly not what I got my degree in at university, but it really feels like I'm really in my true purpose and, uh, you know, this is where I'm meant to be now. So take us back beyond those kind of the start of those five years. Where were you? What was the kind of situation that you found yourself in when you first realized, hang on a second, what on earth is going on? Yeah, I mean, when I look back now, there's lots of things that I can recognize from my childhood as a teenager and as a young adult, but I didn't realize it it, at the time. I just thought I was, you know, somebody that would always strive to be the best at whatever I did. I would try hard. I would try and be nice and kind to everybody. And whilst that might not seem like it's a bad thing necessarily, I was doing it because I needed other people to like me. I needed other people to praise me because I wasn't getting that at home, particularly from my father. You know, my mum was very good at praising me, probably overpraising me in some respects because her sense of worth came from being a mum. And my father, on the other hand, you know, never praised, never said, I love you. So I saw that as a reflection of me and that I wasn't good enough. That kind of led me to attract 
very narcissistic and toxic relationships, you know, friendships, boyfriends over the years. And particularly when I got married then in 1999, I think it was, I was happy. But even at that point, again, when I look back, there had been red flags, you know, my ex-husband got a tattoo with my name on sort of three months into when we first met. Now, when I think about that now, I'm like, siren city, you know, red flag. But at the time, because I didn't feel worthy in myself, I thought, wow, he must really like me then if he's saying these things and he's got a tattoo with my name on. So he was kind of saying all of those things and acting in a certain way that I'd never had really, because, you know, I'd obviously sought that from my father. So that led us to get married. And and even on our wedding day, I remember actually looking down on our wedding day, we'd already had some problems. But of course, it was booked, everybody was there. And you know, we were going to get married. But even actually on my wedding day, I remember thinking, am I doing the right thing? But I don't want to let everybody down. So again, it was the pleasing everybody else. Anyway, we got married. And we actually both worked together at the time. And so we spent a lot of time together. But even then, there were little cracks, little things starting to happen. And eventually, we decided that we wanted to have children. I fell pregnant very easily. And we had our son, Will. This is then when I think things probably started to slide. The attention, obviously, if you have a baby, is you're going to be obviously tending to your child. And I realize now when I look back, that was probably a real trigger to him that there was less attention for him now, even though it was our child, there was less attention for him. I didn't realize it because I was really focused on being the the best mum I could possibly be, of course, um, in that scenario. A few years later, we decided, obviously, we wanted to try for a sibling for William. Again, I started to have multiple miscarriages. And anyone who knows who's had fertility issues, it can be so devastating. And I was kind of sat in the middle of feeling so grateful we got our son well. But on the other side, you know, I desperately didn't want him to be an only child. And I and I felt like a failure. I felt a failure. I felt fat. I felt ugly because I felt like I was like this elephant being pregnant all the time. But there was no baby at the end of it. And a lot of my friends were having their second babies as well. So I felt a real sense of, of failure. And then we tried fifth and final time, we said, right, this is it. You know, we're very blessed we've got our son, but we'll try one more time. And I genuinely meant that because mentally it was really, really affecting me. So we tried, I fell pregnant. Luckily, that that was a successful pregnancy. And I went on to have our daughter, Maddie. However, when I was six months pregnant with my daughter, Maddie, um, I found out that he was actually having an affair. And the devastation of that, that we'd, we'd got a house together, a family together, a life together, a son together, I was pregnant. And then finding out that he'd had an affair. And there was an element of me that thought he sh- I should just tell him to go. But I was really scared. I'd given my job up. So I was totally financially reliant upon him as well. And I felt trapped. But I felt like I didn't know what to do. I couldn't even go out and get drunk. You know, I was six months pregnant. And it was really hard. And my mum was a really big support for me at the time. I didn't know what to do. But again, I was brought up on fairy tales. I was brought up on happily ever afters, Prince Charming. You don't quit things. So I stayed. Again, probably from that point, I think something probably really did die inside of me. But my parents were together. We stayed married. My children were not going to have a single mother. They weren't going to have a broken home. I stayed together because that's the right thing to do. And then about it was Maddie was born. And a year after Maddie was born, myself and my husband, we were sleeping in separate rooms. 
Zooms. Every now and again, I'd really try and make it work. But I was very focused again on being a mother. And he was off. God knows what he was up to. I'm sure there was lots of things I still don't even know that he was up to at the time necessarily. But we were still together. Then a year after Maddie was born, my mum died really suddenly. She, she'd got bad rheumatoid arthritis, but she actually had a ruptured aortic abdominal aneurysm, triple A. They call it a ticking time bomb. She probably had it for years. And um, it, it had ruptured. And I remember my dad coming around and literally, you know, he'd been at the hospital when it happened. They thought it might have been kidney stones as such. They didn't call me. I lived 10 minutes from them. And my dad rocked up and literally the words that came out of his mouth were, it's your mum, she's dead. I'd got my son looking at me, my daughter was asleep, my husband was away. So it's like my dad came and handed this to me in that moment. And my mum was my rock. She was my world. And in that moment, again, I took over. I looked after my dad. I said, have, we, have you told Louise or Laura, my sisters? He hadn't. So that became my role in looking after him. So I kind of stopped my own grieving process um, in all of that too. As I was continuing and over the coming months, I was focused on my father. I was focused on being, a, again, a good mother. My husband, it was kind of out the window as such, but he was still there. We were still kind of married. And then a year after my mum had passed away, my husband kept going to work early. He worked for an airline. He was cabin crew and he kept going early saying, I just want, just need some space. I don't like seeing you this upset. I just need to think things through. So he was kind of being this altruistic person as such, like I'm, I'm going early for you because, you know, you need that space and things aren't right and everything else as well. And there was lots of other stories, which, you know, I could be here for hours talking about various stories he he's made up over the years. About a year in the August after my mum had passed away, I remember him saying one time, I'm leaving you now, but just tell the kids I'm going to work early. And I, and I don't know what it was inside of me. I said, no, not this time. You, you tell them. Now, Maddie was asleep, but he called Will in and said, you know, daddy's leaving. I remember my son went to the floor and went no like this and you know my ex packed up his stuff and literally within five minutes he'd gone at this particular point obviously I was really scared because I was like oh my gosh I'm you know that is it now and I really knew it was it and it was a Saturday I remember it like yesterday it was a Saturday but it wasn't until the Monday that I realized actually the financial mess that we were actually in over 70,000 pounds worth of debt you know 23 was in my name was that what he had kind of left you with he just left you with this mess and then walked away so we'd obviously got a mortgage together so we were in a really nice four bed detached house and again you know from the outside world we looked like this wonderful happy family you know two beautiful children you know married nice house you know um it looked like the archetypal typical you know marriage that people would aspire to be in very different behind closed doors um, as I'm sure many people will know when I look back my ex would change clothes three or four times a day his grooming habits would be really, he'd spend hours as such, you know, he'd get a little speck on his clothes and he'd be coming back and he'd be buying things. And, you know, and, and again, the money we had coming in, it, it, although we were only on his wage, it was still tight every month with a mortgage and everything else as well. I knew we were in some debt. I thought maybe we were in like eight, nine grand's worth of debt, like, you know, a lot of families might be. And but I didn't realize actually the full extent of all of that debt um, as such. And it was a shock because then I thought, oh, my God, I'm not only a single mom. My children are from this broken family. I'm not working and I now have all of this debt. What am I going to do? 
And my big fears were, you know, I'm going to end up in a council house. I'm going to end up as this single mother, you know, that everybody judges. And, 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 and again, I feel really ashamed that I felt like that at the time because people do find themselves in these sticky situations. So I was being really judgmental in that moment, maybe of not wanting to be someone that I thought I'm not that kind of person. But what is that kind of person at the end of the day? You know, it's just, it's like all of us, you know, we end up in these situations. Again, that was the programming that I'd had growing up and everything else um, too, and, and not understanding all of that. And, you know, over the coming weeks and months, I was so low. I didn't have my mum to obviously go and speak to my dad, obviously totally unemotionally available. One of my sisters lives far away. The other one lived in America. I felt very alone and isolated. I had a group of friends one in particular who was my best friend seemed to thrive on the drama of what was happening in my life. And ultimately, I realized she was also a narcissist um, as well, because she was going around telling people my private business and, you know, saying she couldn't cope without me. And of course, people were then saying, what a great friend. So, you know, all of that kind of element. And it was just a really hard time for me. I was suffering with complex PTSD. I was diagnosed with PTSD. I now know it's complex PTSD. I was depressed. I was anxious all of the time. I'd wake up literally with tingling in my fingers, heart rapidly racing. I'd go and sit on my bathroom floor. I'd self-harm. I'd desperately try not to have a panic attack before the kids got up because I had to make their lunches and I had to take them to school. And I tried to shield my children from all of this as well. So I'd literally be dragging myself up, happy Caroline, getting them ready for school outside the front door. No one would have known how I was feeling. And then I'd come back and it would be like, oh, it was like climbing Mount Everest, every little thing. And again, from a trauma perspective, I know I was in a very much functional freeze, doing the things that I had to do. But I was literally in this deep shame, trauma response of feeling like a failure. And I was still in the marital home at this point, but I was putting brown letters in the bin, didn't want to open anything because I didn't have any money. The money coming in didn't equal the money going out. Uh, my ex-husband was barely seeing the children. He was giving me the bare minimum. And it was a really tough time. And I realized I can't, A, I can't afford to stay where I am, but I was scared of leaving that house. But I'm getting older. I don't want to be going backwards kind of thing. I just buried my head. I literally buried my head for months and months and months. If I saw a letter coming in and it had a bit of red on, I would open it. Often if that was a council tax, for instance, because obviously you have to pay that because you end up in prison if you don't. So I'd kind of, I'd and I'd be contacting like gas company and say, oh, my card's been cleaned this month. And they were ever so nice. And then they say, okay, we'll just add a bit onto your direct debit next month. And I'm like, okay, great. So it would give me a bit of months breathing space. So I was literally every month robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I, I was a podiatrist. That, that's actually what my profession was. So I had a clinic that I was running and that was basically feeding us. So the cash that I was earning for that was feeding us. I was on tax credits then at the time as well, which I felt a lot of shame about. That was helping helping me pay as much of the bills as I possibly could. But the money coming in did not equal the money going out because of all of the debt as well. So it was a really, really stressful time. And my ex-husband as well, and anyone that's been in an abusive relationship, often knows that just because a relationship ends doesn't mean the abuse ends. In fact, it can often escalate. And we call this post-separation abuse. So he was already with someone then. And there was a lot of abuse about how I was being a mother, although he wasn't doing anything himself. You know, so he he knew my Achilles heel, you know, that being a mum for me was like the, the my priority and the thing that I needed to do. And that was where the abuse was coming from as well. And money and everything too. For anyone that's listening to this, right now 
they're listening to your story and thinking, well, hang on a second, you've gone from this really low point, this point where your house has been repossessed. You have put a lot of pressure on yourself, though, because you're making yourself almost feel a lot worse by, you know, that internal narrative. I'm a single mom. We're living in a, you know, not as good a home. You're not in your mind at that point. You're not where you want to be in terms of being the mum that you wanted to be. And of course, you're now divorced. However, and this is the bit of your story that I absolutely love. You found that internal, I'm not going to give up button and you pressed it. And that is where it started to completely changed for you. It did. I think there was this little light inside of me. And to be fair, it probably came from not necessarily about doing it for myself at that particular point. It was doing it for my children. You know, it was I wanted to be the role model to them to show, you know, you can get knockbacks. Things can get really, really bad. And I mean, really bad. I was low, lowest of the low, you know, and had it again, not been for my kids at that time, I wouldn't be sat here right now. I absolutely wouldn't. It was you know, I couldn't leave my children because I wouldn't leave them to then go and live with their father. So, you know, that that is why I am here now. And so there was this kind of light inside of me and I didn't know how to do it. And initially it was about the money. It was initially about trying to build up where I had a, you know, a bit more money coming in than was going out at that point. And that's when I actually started a network marketing business to earn an extra 50 quid a week, to be fair. That's all it was. You know, that was a lot of money to me at that time, like a huge amount. It was food, food for my kids um, as such. And I became very successful at it. I became one of the top business builders in the UK. I was going on, we ended up going on the holidays, getting checks and, and, you know, whilst I enjoyed being in the network marketing world, and I learned a lot of personal development, I have to say, and I really credit the industry for helping me with that. It it wasn't lighting me up inside. What I loved actually was helping people within my business. And a lot of that was about what they were experiencing in their their lives as such. But I realized I wasn't trained necessarily to do that. So that's when I started to retrain then, because I realized again that all the things that I had tried myself around talking therapy, counseling, you know, and, and of course, podcasts, YouTubes, they're brilliant. And I was watching them, reading all of these things, trying to do all of these things. But I was still feeling really, really stuck. And I didn't know what that missing piece was at that stage. And I realized then as I started to retrain in various modalities, I realized it was nervous system stuff. That's the part that I was missing, the somatic side of it. So I completely retrained in lots of therapy and coaching modalities, um, also integrating positive psychology and all of that too. So that it was a real sense of, okay, we want to heal the past, but we also want to live an amazing future. I don't want to just help people to come back to a mediocrity life. Uh, uh, you know, I want people to thrive and flourish. But to do that, we also need to look back and we need to understand, you know, our interpretation of those things that have happened to me. And in my case, it was my interpretation of my father and, you know, how he was, because that really wired into me those emotional wounds of not feeling good enough, which meant that I was this magnet for toxic relationships because I'd make them feel really great as such, you know, because of their wounds. And they would make me feel good initially to kind of hook me in. But then obviously nothing was ever then good enough. And it kind of, and we call this the abuse cycle then where, you know, um, they are giving you just enough breadcrumbs of love to stay and to kind of produce the dopamine and the oxytocin and the serotonin. So when they're being nice, it feels good. They're saying all the things that you've never felt. 
But then there'll come a point where maybe you'll push a boundary with them or you'll question them about something and then they'll behave in a certain way. And that's where the cortisol and the adrenaline will start to kick in. And we we actually become physiologically addicted to that cycle of abuse. You know, my body was addicted to the trauma bond of being in a toxic relationship, of not feeling good enough in a relationship. So because that was how I felt with my father, that trauma bond as such That's what I was replicating in my other relationships because it became my version of normal. And it became an addiction to struggle. You know, I was somebody that I thought, God, there's always these things happening to me, thinking it was the external world that was doing all of that. But actually, when I look back, I was creating all of that. And that's not to say anyone listening who might think, well, I'm not creating abuse. I'm not not saying that. What I'm saying is we find ways of living our life to make us feel the safest we can. And safety to us is the same feelings that we had in our childhood. And we are recreating all of that. But I didn't understand that. No one taught me any of this stuff. I didn't realize I had to work at a nervous system level. So when I retrained in lots of different modalities, you know, when I work with people now, when I was actually doing these things on myself, I couldn't change the events of my past. I couldn't change my childhood. I couldn't change the fact I'd been in an abusive relationship. I can't change those events. But what I absolutely could change was at a nervous system level, my interpretation of those events and the somatic experience of them. So rather than me looking back and thinking, oh, I've been treated like this because I'm not good enough, I can look back and feel I know I was good enough. This was about them. It wasn't a reflection of me. And it's no good just saying that because many of us, when we look back at maybe abusive relationships, childhood stuff, we know it's not our fault. We know it is the other person, but knowing isn't good enough. You know, the knowing is a different part of our brain. We need to feel it. We need to process these trauma responses, complete them in our body. That might mean shaking. It might mean shouting. It might mean lots of different elements. And everybody's going to be different with that so that we can complete response cycles and almost time stamp these events to the past. So we're no longer in the present as in our nervous system is back in our childhood, particularly reacting in that moment to keep that emotional wound from feeling in that way. So we need to timestamp that into the past so we can look back, not be in. And I I sense the passion in you for the whole like topic, the whole area and everything else. For anyone listening right now, they need to know where you are right now because they've heard the whole story in terms of how low you got, how like, you know, how difficult it actually was. But right now, where are you? What's the space that you're currently in? Yeah, it's really, really exciting. I still have to pinch myself, to be fair. So I initially started working one-to-one with people, became full very, very quickly. And I was actually on the verge of burnout, if I'm honest, because I just wanted to help so many people. And I've utilized social media to be able to do that as well, you know, because you can reach more people. So I realized, okay, if I'm doing one-to-one, now I need to do this to groups of people and help more people. So I moved on to working with groups. And what I noticed was as others started to heal and thrive and flourish, 
they wanted to help other people as well. So I thought, okay, then I need to create something then around this because I need to teach people how to help other people then heal because then collectively we're going to make such a big difference. So I founded and created at the time my narcissistic trauma-informed coaching certification, which has got sort of a narcissistic abuse specialist as part of it. But then I was also getting a lot of people coming to me saying, hey, I really want to know how you're doing this and what you are doing. I don't necessarily need the narcissism piece. So I thought, okay, then let's make a bigger collective difference then. So that's when I created my somatic trauma-informed coaching certification then as well, and my trauma-informed positive psychology practitioner. So I have now modules that people can do. They can specialize in narcissism if they want, or they can just specialize in trauma-informed practice, but they are all ICF and CPD accredited. And what we're really excited about, this has been a year-long project for me. Again, this comes from, I want to be the best in the business at this because I really want people to feel like what they're learning and making a difference to others with the highest level of integrity we now have the world's very first and only trauma-informed coaching and leadership qualification. It's, a, it's not just, an, you know, ICF and CPD, they're brilliant. You know, great coaching accreditations. This is a qualification. It's a master's degree equivalent. It's a level seven. It's the only one in the world. We are the first literally to launch this as well. And we've just been taking through in the, at the moment, we've got our first cohort. We've had over 250 people sign up as our first cohort to go through the qualification. We're all of this. And the beautiful thing that I think about our community now is it's not just the education piece here. It's the healing journey they are going on themselves, the support that they're getting. So not only are we learning how to help others in a really really great way at a nervous system level because it's a somatic coaching qualification. But actually, the healing journey they are personally going on, making them better in their personal relationships as a parent, in their business. You know, I believe everybody in business should be trauma-informed because not only will that help you, yourself, it will raise the game of how you show up for your clients in your communities, in the workplace, in schools. So next year, we've got lots of exciting things planned of getting these workshops, these programs into schools, into corporate workplaces, health sectors, and of course, individuals. So collectively, we can make a difference. And this all started from me doing one-to-ones and it's grown. I never thought it would get to this stage. It's kind of this evolution as such of just really wanting to make a difference. And in positive psychology, Nicola, we have something called post-traumatic growth. This is growth that happens to you actually because of what you have been through. I absolutely know, had I not experienced my mum dying, you know, the childhood that I had, my ex-husband, the abusive relationship, the debt, the repossession, you know, all of the anxiety and the depression, I wouldn't be here right now and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. But because I have experienced that, that's when I said right at the start, I totally believe that I'm here for that. And I totally believe as well, this gives me goosebumps, my mum passed away before I split up from my husband because she had a very tough childhood with her father. Being married to my father as well, really tough. I know what my dad is like. So I totally believe that my mum died before me and my ex-husband split up because she knew if she'd have been alive when I split up from my husband, I'd have looked to my mum. I'd have looked to my mum to rescue me. But because she wasn't there and she died before we split up, it made me hit rock bottom 
but it made me rescue myself to then be able to go out and help others rescue themselves. I'm not here to rescue them. I'm here to empower them to rescue themselves. I don't heal. I help people self-heal because all healing is self-healing. And that's what we want to do. It's not about me. It's about them. And I absolutely convinced that my mum passed away first so that this would happen. And, and I am where I am today because of all of that. I completely agree. And I think you are exactly where you're meant to be. We could carry on talking all the time about this because I find it such a fascinating subject. And talking about that ripple effect and how that ripple effect is changing other people's lives in a really positive way, that they're on that journey now to realizing their lives also need to change. They don't have to put up with the abuse. Caroline, Thank you so much for joining us today. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Yeah, so just come and find me on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn, just Caroline Strawson. Drop us a message. We really genuinely reply to everybody. So, you know, please do. Don't be alone in any of this. Questions, you know, maybe you've just thought, gosh, maybe my partner is, parent is, whoever that may be. Do get in touch, you know, because even if we don't know, we'll signpost you where to go. And one final thing I just want to ask you, because this kind of level of abuse, this abuse that you can't necessarily see, it can get worse during the festive season, can't it? It absolutely can. It really can, because they will use it as an opportunity to either hoover you, which is, you know, they'll, they'll love bomb you and try and get back in potentially a relationship with you as well. Or they will escalate it, often using children to weaponize in that situation as well. And I think it's keep your blinkers on just because it's the holiday times. Do not deviate away from anything. Very, very strong boundaries. And again, if you're struggling, I've literally just done a free navigating the narcissist masterclass in the holiday times. Anyone wants it, just email in. We'll send it to you to watch. It will. It has some top tips for you of how to navigate the narcissist at this time of year. Because like you say, it, it can escalate at this time too. Well, thank you so much. I mean, just such an incredible story as well, like in terms of the journey that you've been on and that you continue to go on. And don't forget, guys, if you are thinking, well, maybe I need to tell part of my story but I don't know how to be able to go about it then why don't you start to take our free PR quiz pr-quiz.com and you can find out how ready you are to be able to begin telling your story in a much bigger way through the media so that you too can go on and have the kind of level of impact that Caroline has done until next time on the power of storytelling podcast. We'll see you then.